Thank you for worshiping with us today. Today marks the most important week of the year for Christians around the world. We call it Holy Week. And for many people around the world, Easter is simply an opportunity to gather with family and friends. It's considered a holiday in our country, but so many are missing the implications of what this week actually means. And if we're not careful, we can allow this week to become a cultural holiday rather than a great spiritual holiday that it actually is. I would imagine this year, more than any other, Palm Sunday and Easter will cause people in America and around the world to think about their spiritual journeys because of the current pandemic that our country is experiencing. And while Palm Sunday and Easter are some of the most exciting times for us as Christians, it can also be challenging as a pastor to preach from these texts year after year. If you were like me and grew up in church, you have heard the triumphal entry passages and the resurrection passages year after year. But the Word of God is always illuminating to our hearts and minds. The gospel, which is the good news that hopelessly sinful man can be redeemed to a perfect holy God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not simply a one-time decision, but rather a daily rediscovery. I'm learning about the gospel every day because every day I'm more and more aware of my own sin, but simultaneously more and more aware of God's grace made available to me through the death of Jesus on the cross in my place. So I challenge you as I challenge myself not to allow this Holy Week to be just another Holy Week. Let's commit to making this week everything that it should could be. Today we will be reading Luke 19, 28 to 40. And this is what Luke tells us. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying... Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very rocks would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to make a few observations from this text. Number one, the importance of Jerusalem. Luke 9:51 to 1927 comprises Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. 
He has constructed his gospel in a way that builds anticipation to the moment when Jesus finally arrives in this great city. But in order to understand the significance of Jerusalem, we need to do some background work. Jerusalem is first mentioned in the Bible, in the book of Joshua. The Jebusites, one of the nations that Israel conquered, inhabited Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was given to the tribe of Benjamin as their allotted land. But eventually, when King David had become king, he moved the capital of Israel from Hebron to Jerusalem. And it became the religious, cultural, and political center for all of the Israelites. And King David desired to build a great temple to God. But it ended up being his son, Solomon, who was given this great privilege. And upon Solomon's death, Israel became divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom became the kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom became the kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Judah kept its capital in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem remained the center of Jewish life for the southern kingdom until 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in under King Nebuchadnezzar and conquered the Israelites, forcing them into exile and destroying the temple. And the biblical books of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about the rebuilding of the wall and the rebuilding of the temple. And in 538 B.C. the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And the construction is completed in 516 B.C. And it resumes its function as the center of Jewish worship. Now during the time of Jesus, the temple continues to be the place of Jewish worship in Jerusalem. Upgrades and expansion of the temple occurred during the reign of Herod the Great. But you cannot think of Jerusalem without thinking of the temple. Later in this chapter... Jesus weeps over the center of Jerusalem and he enters into the temple and drives out those who were making a profit in the temple. And it is in this environment that Jesus will enter into this great city where the Jewish religion has thrived for hundreds of years and through his death and resurrection, Jesus will come to put an end to the religious ritual of this great city and to communicate to the entire world that religion will not make you right with God. Only a relationship with Jesus can accomplish that. The great reformer, Martin Luther, he penned these words about his conversion to faith in Christ. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. What about you today? Are you banking your eternity in the religion of a city like Jerusalem, 
a church like First Baptist or in the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The second point, the confirmation in Scripture. Jesus sends two of his disciples into a village to find a cult that no one has ever sat on. This seems like a strange way for the king of the universe to enter into the holy city of Jerusalem until we understand that this is the way it has to be done according to Scripture. We need to go back to the book of Zechariah to understand why the cult is so important. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus never goes rogue from the teachings of the Old Testament. It's not uncommon to hear people say, now that Jesus has come and died on the cross and been resurrected, that the Old Testament really is no longer important for us. That's just simply not true. In an essay regarding Jesus' use of the Old Testament, biblical scholars Craig Blomberg and Julie Dykes say this about Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament. In sum, we see in Jesus' view of the Old Testament, God's word to the world as evidenced by his citation of a wide selection of texts, even if not always in ways with which his Jewish contemporaries would have agreed. What we do not see in Christ's teaching based on the Bible of his people is anything that would point to a canon within a canon, viewing only certain parts of the Bible as authoritative. Most of the kings of the day would have ridden in with a great procession of soldiers and guards on a powerful horse, and yet the most powerful king to ever roam the earth comes in on a colt. And a colt is a young male donkey, which is less than four years old. Many of you who grew up in this part of the state are well aware of the differences between mules and colts and foals. But I had to do some research to make sure I was communicating accurately. Donkeys are work animals. They are not kept on the farm or around the house just to look pretty and pet. Currently, there are more than 40 million donkeys in the world, mostly in underdeveloped countries where they are used as pack animals. Working donkeys are typically associated with those living at or below subsistence levels. Based on what we know about Jesus, a colt is actually the perfect animal for him to ride because he humbled himself. He cared for the marginalized and the downtrodden. And he spent his time with the very people that the religious of the day avoided. What's even more surprising in this story is the response of the owners of the cult. They simply give it away. Perhaps they were already believers in Jesus and were honored to be included in his mission. But the text is not clear on that. In God's providence, the owners of the cult agree that Jesus can have the cult and the first person to ever sit upon this animal is Jesus of Nazareth. The multitude of disciples begin to praise Jesus and rejoice. But they don't really understand what is about to happen to Jesus. Throughout Luke's gospel and the other gospel accounts, the disciples are some of the most ignorant people when it comes to accurately 
understanding Jesus' mission. Jesus has already, in Luke's gospel, predicted his death three times. And in one of those predictions, he explicitly mentions Jerusalem. And yet the disciples are cheering for Jesus as he enters into this great city. Because in their minds, he is coming to Jerusalem to overthrow the great world power of Rome and bring the Jewish people great power and prestige. But we know that is not why Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He did it to confirm what the scriptures had been saying about the Messiah all along, that he would suffer, die, and be raised again. Number three, Jesus will be praised. The multitude of disciples were praising Jesus for all of the wonderful miracles he had done. They shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he was ushering peace into the world. Here is biblical truth for you today. You cannot have peace without Jesus Christ. Here's why I know this. Sin causes chaos and destruction. From the moment Adam and Eve chose to partake of the fruit that God told them not to, chaos entered the world. Chaos is the opposite of peace. The only chance we have to remedy the chaos of sin is to be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Apart from a relationship with Jesus, you will not have peace. A vaccine that will eliminate the coronavirus is not going to give people peace. People returning to their jobs will not give people peace. Schools and daycares resuming operations will not give peace. That's worldly comfort, not peace. But regardless of people choosing the peace of God over the chaos of this world, one thing we know for sure is that Jesus will be praised. The Pharisees that are watching Jesus come into Jerusalem and seeing the disciples praising him are upset. They tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Why would they do that? They don't want Jesus to be king. He went against them time after time in the Gospels. And Jesus' response to the Pharisees is epic. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is going to get glory whether we give it to him or not. There is evidence of this all over the pages of Scripture. In Isaiah 55, 12, the trees will clap. Psalm 114 says the mountains will skip and sing. Psalm 19, the skies proclaim his handiwork. Psalm 150 says everything that has breath will praise the Lord. And in Philippians 2, 9 and 10, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven, 
and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything in all of creation will bow down to Jesus. He has power over everything. He cannot be defeated and his will cannot be thwarted. The coronavirus does not win. Jesus wins today and every day. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We submit to your leadership and your authority. We ask that you continue to watch over those that are in pain, that are hurting. For doctors and nurses as they are courageously fighting this virus. For medical researchers that are looking for a cure. For businesses that have closed. For leaders in our country, president, governor, mayors that are having to make difficult decisions, give them wisdom and discernment. But ultimately what we pray today is that your name will be praised. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.